So on the an Aliyah a day that I got to guest host, I shared some sources about the first Aliyah where we're in Shemot 13 and talking about verse 18 where it says the children of Israel were armed. So in the parasha, it talks about us leaving Mitzrayim with these weapons. And the weapons really are the name of Hashem. And so I went into how the manifestation of Hashem's name is what our weapons are, which is obviously the sword of the spirit and um, Mashiach and what Mashiach commanded us, which is by default what Hashem commanded us because, you know, their commandments are the same. So what I ended up going into uh, was about how Hashem's name manifests as whatever weapon we needed. So I wanted to go in in a little bit more detail since I now have more time on this podcast. And so for the Beshalak C-Class podcast, I want to start off with these weapons. So it comes from the word Hamushim which can actually be humashim, like your humash, you know, so your humashes for uh, layman's terms, multiple or plural humash is humashim. And when you really look at what this is saying, it's like, you know, the the Torah portions and the Haftarot portions. These are the weapons that Hashem has given us. There are literally five books of Torah and while we're at that, you know, when you look at Sefer Tehillim, the book of Psalms, there's actually five books of Tehillim. So literally our weapons, you know, are the Torah and the Psalms. And Mashiach talks about, you know, how he's revealed through the Psalms and the Torah. So <clears throat> let me see if I can um, pull that up for us real quick. Let's see here. He says in Luke 24, 44 is one of the places it says, everything must be fulfilled that is written about me in the law of Moses, the prophets and the Psalms. So if you literally look at our weapons, <clears throat> Slika, that it is the Torah portions, it is the Psalms, it is the Haftarot portions. And there is a psalm that goes with every parasha. So these are all called our weapons. So in the humash, the art scroll humash, Slika, <clears throat> it says under the commentary, we we were we're or were armed. So the children of Israel were armed. It says, although a nation under the direct protection of God should not need arms to defend itself. <clears throat> Sleeker. Uh, and I brought up the point that, um, you know, when Hashem goes before us, 
while being behind us because you know the pillar of cloud the pillar of fire moved behind us as we were crossing over the Yom Suf and yet Hashem was leading us in a cloud at the same time in front of us because the the water split and Hashem led us through the waters like he led us through the desert but he was also our rear guard really he guarded us on all sides but I was saying that you know if Hashem is going to clear a path for you there's there's not really anything left for you to even like have to fight, you know, and much less there's not really anything for you to look at. So when you really look at what's going on, you have the fact here that it says in this commentary, although a nation under the direct protection of God should not need arms to defend itself. I mean, that's true. It says it is the Torah's way that people should conduct themselves in a manner and then, if necessary, God will intervene with miracles. That's from Rabbeinu Bakya. And then it goes on to say, even though the people were armed, they would have fled back to Mitzrayim if faced by war against the Philistines. In the words of Rabbi Hirsch, it was not the sword at their side that was lacking, but the heart underneath that failed. They lacked as yet the spirit of trustfully putting themselves in God's hands under any and all circumstances. <clears throat> so really, when, when it looks, it's like we got all these weapons, but if we don't have any skill, if we don't have any heart, you know, to trust in Hashem, should we need to use them, then it's just kind of like it's defeating the purpose of us being armed. So that made me think about Hebrews 4, 2, where it says, For we also have had good news proclaimed to us, just as they did. Meaning that in the wilderness, the gospel was preached. Just like the same way to us nowadays in this current exile, the gospel is being preached. So that makes you think, what is the gospel? Because in the wilderness, they had the Torah. You know, and now today, apparently we don't, apparently, if we want to be preaching the good news, because it's all found in Romans, it's all found in, you know, Galatians and things like that, and it's in Ephesians. And it's like, well, if that's the gospel, then where is that found in the wilderness? You know, was there a Roman road in the wilderness? Was there a Roman road to Mount Sinai? Much less is there a Roman road to Jerusalem? And come to find out, you know, it's it's the same gospel. So what is that gospel? Uh, none other than I am Hashem who has delivered you from Mitzrayim. I've delivered you from Egypt. I've delivered you from slavery. I delivered you. Notice the I in all of those. So, so much so to the point, and again, I quote Ishpela, who <clears throat> brought this down when someone was asking him, he first uh, converted and got started, you know, being observant. And someone asked him, why do you wear those strings? He goes, oh, these are zitzit. I wear them because Hashem took us out of Egypt. And I'm like, wow, like what a beautiful answer that is, you know, to think that being delivered from Mitzrayim is the reason why we observe the commandments. Which means that by default, if we don't deserve, if we don't observe the commandments, we're saying, I'm totally fine with being a slave to materiality, totally fine with being a slave to the exile, totally fine with not being subjected to Hashem, but to my own path, 
you know, and so really you're going to go back into bondage. And because you have not embraced the Torah, you know, you have not embraced the voice of Hashem, or you have not embraced being filled with his spirit. Now you're, you're in the same position here where it says that, you know, the same good news was preached to them. So in Hebrews 4, it goes on to say, but the word they heard did not help them. Why? Because they were not unified with those who listened in faith. And remember, faith is the word emuna, which all has to do with an action that's connected to the belief, kind of like the way our soul and our bodies are united. So our doing should be with our obedience. Our doing should be with our belief. So when you really look at, you know, the reason why the good news didn't help, didn't help any of us when we were in the wilderness and we were armed and we had, you know, Hashem protecting us and we had our own protection as well that was going to be used if necessary. Because guess what? The Amalekites came after us. You know, the the other armies of the surrounding nations came after us, Sikon and Og, their people. We had to fight. We had to fight Midian. You know, and it's like, so what does that look like? Well, Hashem leads the way and we have to fight, you know, and taking over, um, taking back the land, I should say, after we crossed over the Jordan under the leadership of Yeshua, because that's really who that is, Yeshua, that, um, you know, we had to fight some kings in that in that land. And, uh, you know, it was a real battle, but Hashem was with us. And so it's supernatural, but... The natural is not um, divorced from it. So when you think about <clears throat> taking your soul from your body, at best, you're, you're dead, you're a corpse. And so when you really look at saying, oh, I believe in God, it's just like saying, yeah, I believe in God, but I'm just a spirit without a body, which means you're dead. You're still dead. So we put ourselves in the same positions as the children of Israel in this first Aliyah here that Hashem was like, you know what? I don't want them to see war. I don't want them to go back to Egypt. We're going to take a, a further route. Cause notice he said the, the route that would lead us by the way of the Philistines, this would be like a simple, more direct route, but yet Hashem is going to lead us around it. And it was all because we did not have unification with Amuna. We believed in Hashem but we weren't really doing anything yet. We weren't really partaking of the manna. We weren't really, you know, covered in zitzit. We weren't really, you know, fully engaged in the Shabbat. You know, because a few chapters later, even when we're given the Shabbat in this parasha, that Datan and Aviram go out and lead people to violate it. So it wasn't like this whole national consciousness of everybody is being observant to Hashem. And that's another thing we always have to think about, too, because especially as Lapid, we would think, oh, everybody's, you know, tuning in and all this kind of stuff. And it's just like, well, the thing is, we uh, we don't know who's who. Because some people are all about it and some people aren't, you know. And so uh, one of the things that came up here that. Um, let's see. We were looking at this passage in Matthew uh, about uh, the sheep and the goat. 
<clears throat> it was in Matthew 25. So let's see here. Yeah, Matthew 25, 33, talking about the sheep to the right and the goats to the left. Well, if you look at the beginning part of that, it starts in 31. It says, when the Son of Man comes in his glory and all the angels with him, he will sit on his glorious throne. First of all, Mashiach is going to sit on the throne of glory. You know, and then it says, verse 32, all the nations will be gathered before him. And he will separate the people from one another as a shepherd separates the sheep from the goats. And so you, you see here that, you know, not everybody's always on the same page. Yeah, we're in the same flock together trying to follow the same shepherd. But some people really aren't there for the shepherd. Some people aren't really there to be a sheep. Some people aren't going to get to go to the right. Bezrat Hashem, you know, you and I are choosing to be sheep that go to the right. But again, that's the question we have to ask ourselves. Are we really sheep or are we really goats? One of the things about sheep and goats is that their blood is practically the same during their first year. So, you know, when you think about your first year of conversion, like you can't really tell who's really in it to win it. And who's just kind of like, well, until I find a better option or until I can you know, get what I need to get from here so that I can move on to the next place. You know, it's just kind of like, okay, so the blood's the same, but at the, in the end, all be all in the results, we're going to see the separation and that's going to happen from Mashiach himself. He's going to come with his angels and they're going to gather us in. And then we're going to separate out one, another parable brought down in the gospels is that it's like, a, the kingdom is like a net. It's going to bring in fish of all kinds. And then the fishermen are going to separate the good fish from the bad fish. But, you know, and we're looking here, the, the sheep and the goat are going to be separated. So the sheep are going to go to the right. The goats are going to go to the left. And so <clears throat> with our faith, we have to understand that, that, yeah, we've been given these amazing spiritual weapons. But if we're not using them, then, you know, what is that? And furthermore, if we're not even believing and trusting in Hashem, also, what is that? So <clears throat> one of the legends of the Jews drops uh, in volume two, uh, chapter four. Uh, it basically brings this down. It says that you, Moshe is talking. He says, you shall bless, praise, extol, adore and glorify him. That is the Lord of war, literally Ish Milkama, Hashem Milkama, like the, the king of, of glory, the king of war, as it is written in um, Psalm 24, talking about lift up your heads, O you gates, be lifted up, you ancient doors. So uh, it talks about Hashem being the, a person of war. So it says, instead of the sword and the five sorts of arms which they bore, they made use of their mouth, and it was of greater avail than all possible weapons of war. The Lord hearkened unto their prayer for which they had been had but been waiting. So again, it's like we got these weapons, but using our mouth is actually the greater thing to use. So it's like Mashiach said, you know, 
sell your cloak, buy a sword. It's like, yeah, have your sword, but what you really need to be ready for is to use your mouth, you know, to be crying out to Hashem and to be fulfilling, you know, God's will in the earth through what we say and what we do. Because typically things we do are beyond what we would say. Because we can all say things, but not everybody does things. Which is the whole beautiful thing about Lapid is that we put our money, so to speak, where our mouth is. We believe in tithing. We believe in the Shabbat. And we believe in eating kosher. We believe in zitzit that are not on belt loops, but are on four-corner garments. You know, we believe in wearing tefillin. We believe in dressing zanut and all so on and so forth from the, the commandments of the Torah. Like, we don't sparse it out and be like, yeah, we'll do this. Maybe we'll do that. And the way we're going to do this is actually going to be a little bit different from what it uh, is said to have been done. So, you know, and when that is the case, it's just kind of like, okay, are are you really putting your money where your mouth is or are you just kind of making it up? So for us at Lapide, we don't make it up. We do it. We do. We do all of these things, you know, and we're continuously learning. We're continuously growing. And so if you really think about that, connect that with 2 Corinthians 10, 3 through 5. It says, for though we walk in the flesh, we do not wage war according to the flesh. For the weapons of our warfare are not fleshly, but powerful through God. Again, the weapons of our warfare are not fleshly, okay? When you really get down to the essence of what your mouth is, that it's beyond your flesh because you're beginning to bridge the gap between the physical and the spiritual because the words that you come that come out of your mouth are spirit. You know, just like Hashem's voice speaks forth, it's spirit. It's the spirit of God. And so our weapons are not to be fleshly, but spiritual. This is why words do actually cause and affect change. If you're going to talk bad or talk down to somebody, you actually do wound them. You disable them. Even so, where you talk about their bad traits, you can bring forth an exponential development and increase of those traits, even just by talking about them. So if so-and-so is, is in your mind known for being late, the more you talk about this person being late, they will continue to be late literally to everything. And it'll be like not just 15 minutes. It'll turn into 30, an hour, to the point where they might not even show up anymore. And the person doesn't even have to be in the room when you say this about them. So if you think about, is that physical or is that spiritual? I mean, come on. The spiritual is affecting the the physical. So I love what he brings down there. And of course, this is Shaul Hashliach, the distinguished gentleman. And so he goes on to say, it's powerful through God for the tearing down of strongholds. We are tearing down false arguments and every high-minded thing that exalts itself against the knowledge of God. We are taking every thought captive to the obedience of Mashiach. And so when you really look at why are we armed, why do we really have these words, it's all because we're supposed to walk in obedience to Hashem and whatever is trying to keep us from doing that, we're to take it down. So 
one of my sources uh, did bring down uh, what those five weapons were. I'm going to see if I can um, catch that. Okay, so this is 13, 18. Let's see here if I can find this. All right, Schmoat 13, 18. Hmm. Thank you for your patience while I look for this. The, this is from uh, Hiskuni. Says the meaning of the word humashim or chamushim, yes, is uh, armed. Rashi, he says, the fear of the Israelites was not due to their not having arms with which to defend themselves. They were well armed. You are not to wonder where the Israelites had taken these arms from. Arms, which they used in the desert for several wars, started, starting immediately after they crossed the Yam Suf and had been attacked by the Amalekites, they needed arms again when they conquered the land of Canaan under the leadership of Yehoshua, which is Yeshua. An alternate, the word refers to provisions for the journey. The word is used in Bereshit 41.34, where it describes the provisions stored up by Yosef. So now you mean to tell me when the children of Israel are armed as they're being sent out, that it's all connected to what provisions were stored up by Yosef. So if you think about that for a second, because Mashiach was like, I'm equipping you and I'm going to send you out like you're well armed because I've provided for you. And I'm with you, you know, furthermore, so you ain't got nothing to worry about. So that's interesting. So it says, where it describes provisions stored up by Yosef in anticipation for the seven years of famine that were to follow the seven years of plenty. In practice, this meant, according to tradition, that the dough the Israelites took with them lasted a whole month until the 15th of ER, when the heavenly food, the manna, took over. The reason for the need for that miracle had been that God took the people on a detour through the desert. So what I love about it is like, well, this is only a miracle because I took them a longer way. So therefore I'm going to make their natural provision last a little bit longer to compensate for the extra time. Then over here, um, looking at or Hakaim. Uh, it says, if the Israelites had not been armed, they would not have listened to Moshe's, and then they put in parentheses, God's order. So Moshe's orders is Hashem's orders. Just like Mashiach says, my words are not my words, but the words of the one who sent me. Just like Moshe. You know, Moshe came proclaiming, let my people go. But who said that? Hashem said that, not Moshe. And so you really just kind of look at the whole context of how Mashiach is supposed to be exactly like Moshe. Well, there you go. 
as far as the the role and the way he his personality is it's like i am a shliach you know i am sent of hashem which is so cool because with mashiach being memtet memtet is called the shliach of hashem so i mean it's just kind of like you really start tying all these dots together so it says so if they would not have listened to moshe's which is god's order to make and about turn away from the land of the Philistines so that they would not face an immediate battle, the Israelites therefore needed two reasons for not returning to Mitzrayim at the slightest danger, i.e. possession of arms and the unlikelihood of having to use these arms. Combining these two, that they would not have had second thoughts. So... Don't give them don't give them any reason to feel like, oh my gosh, like we're gonna die. We need to go back to Egypt. It's like people are gonna get us and we got these weapons and we gotta use them now. And Hashem is like, okay, clearly missing the point here. So let's not let's not even get into that. All right. So I distinctly remember there being something about what those actual weapons were. So, <clears throat> stand by for a second. Got to do something crazy. out the big guns here we'll go to Onkelos so I believe he brought this down oh and, and another thing that I love about this is that immediately after this verse it says Moshe took up the bones of Yosef so Really, our weapons are connected with Yosef providing for us. And again, um, this is from the Kol Hator. And this is Kol Hator 2.6 that says, Vilna Gaon says that almost every mention of Yosef or the Zadik in the scriptures refers to an aspect of Mashiach ben Yosef. So... There's that drop. Okay, so Ankylos brings down, says the people were armed with weapons, which explains how they had swords with which to fight Amalek and the other enemies. Targum Yerushalayim states that the people were armed with the merit of good deeds. Did you know that your good deeds are weapons for you? Another one goes on to say about the uh, the meaning that this word means to be reduced to a fifth, i.e. only a fifth of the people merited to leave Egypt and the rest died during the plague of darkness. So that's kind of another uh, interpretation there of uh, being armed. Bezrat Hashem, I can find... 
these weapons here. Hmm. No, we got the whole thing with the bones of the Ephraimites. Because uh, the tribe of Ephraim left early. So there was that. So now we got the whole thing of traveling back. Okay, so it says the generation of the wilderness possess unequal to Muna. Rather than arguing with Moshe and saying, how can we break the hearts of our children by retracting our steps and journeying towards Egypt? They exclaim, our personal wishes are of no consequence compared to the loyalty to the words of Moshe ben Amram. So they did have a lot of faith, you know, but it was just kind of one of those things where, you know, I can't, Hashem is saying, I, I'm not going to lead them by the way of the Philistines because they're going to think, oh, I'm going to take them down the same path because, you know, the tribe of Ephraim that left earlier, they did have to fight and then they lost that fight. And only a remnant of them was able to come back, you know, and really be able to tell what happened. So they're just saying that, you know what, if we're supposed to turn back and we're supposed to go this way, then, you know, that's fine. We'll do that. <clears throat> so that's that's on the whole. But there did exist within this group those who did have the weaker faith, because it goes on to say here the weaker ones tore their garments in despair and pulled their hair. But Moshe appeased them. He says, I assured with a I was assured with a divine promise that you will remain free. Moshe is like Hashem said, we're going to be free. So therefore, we're going to be free. So you ain't even got to worry about it. It may not look like freedom, but it is. And how many times, you know, do we really think in our lives where we're going through things where you're like, this don't really look like joy. This doesn't really look like happiness. This doesn't really look like Hashem loves me and I'm blessed in the city and I'm blessed in the field. But you are. And but we are. And so that's something that we always have to remember. <clears throat> because things don't look like we want them to look like. But Hashem is uh is the one who has the right perspective and we have to get there so blessed be the name of Hashem I finally found it it's from the teachings of the Talmud Humash page 148 it says five types of weapons it says the Torah forbids carrying an item from Reshut HaYachid from a private domain to a Reshut HaRabim a public domain on Shabbat one may, however, wear clothing or jewelry when walking into a Reshut Harabim, which is a public domain, because he is not, quote unquote, carrying these items, but is wearing them. So whatever you're wearing, it's not considered as carrying. That's interesting. So we're talking about weapons here, right? Carrying these weapons. 
So what I can already see is that these five weapons are something we wear, like pieces of a garment. And if you added a letter to Hashem's name, making it five letters instead of four, where we've seen this is in the name of Yehuda. And we've also seen this as representing the five cups of Pesach, because that fifth cup is the cup of Eliyahu, which won't be drank until the kingdom is renewed. Because literally Eliyahu is going to show up and drink it. And Mashiach is going to have us all drinking together, and we're going to be feasting in the sukkah of the skin of the Leviathan. But anyway, I go on to say, the rule is that weapons are not considered jewelry or ornaments. Therefore, the Mishnah teaches, a man may not go from his home, which is, or, which is his home from a private domain, to a Rashut Harabim, a public domain, with weapons, even if he wears them. For example, they are in a holster or scabbard attached to his body. So this is interesting because this is like, do not carry on Shabbat as a a uh, offense here to say, you know, don't even carry your weapons. So when it continues on, it says the Mishnah lists five types of weapons, including or included in this ruling, a sword, a bow and a shield and a weapon with prongs similar to a pitchfork, which is called an Allah, and it says, and spear. So if we really look at our weapons, we got a sword, a bow, a shield, some type of pitchfork looking thing, and a spear. And this is from Yerushalayim Shabbat 6.4. Going on to say, our pasuk hints to us that there are five types of weapons. It tells us the children of Israel were armed when they went up from Mitzrayim. The word for armed, which is chamushim, is similar to the word chamisha, slika, five. I was going to say chamashiach, which it could be if you added a yod. So there's that. And it says that this teaches that the Jews were armed with five types of weapons when they left Mitzrayim. So yeah, so if you have the Schottenstein edition, you can look at 45a and note 24. So to get you some extra Yerushalayimi Talmud, there's that. I'll be uh, Yerushalayimi Shabbat 6, uh, 4. That's the uh, source there. All right, so... One of the things I want to say, because we we covered it just by reading that one Mishnah there that, you know, don't carry on Shabbat. And, you know, there's a lot of uh, that going on that we do. We carry on Shabbat. Well, we have to these days anyway, because, you know, we got to protect yourselves. And so um, we we still are in exile, you know. So there's a lot really that plays into you know, making it not black and white, because there's a thing about, you know, you want to make sure that you are putting yourself in the best position of protection and smartness. You know, we don't know what people are doing these days. And so it'd be very, very naive of us to say, oh, I'm not going to carry no weapons today because, you know, it's Shabbat. So and really, when you think about carrying, it doesn't really have anything to do with like defending yourself. So 
if you need to have something to defend yourself, you know, by all means, please do that. So, and carrying on Shabbat is a big subject, lots of halakha to really get into. Uh, and while I'm at it, I wonder what the uh, Sar Shalom halakha would say on that, because I always try to make sure that if I can, I cover a halakhic point on um, <clears throat> these podcasts. So if I look at the Sar Shalom Halakha here, see if we have anything on carrying. Use of the divine name, keeping kosher Shabbat. Here we go. Practice Practicing one's occupation, don't do it. <laughs> Participating in Shabbat services, do it. Laborious activity. All right, let's see if it's under there. So that is page 46. What we got on page 46. Missed it there. All right, 46. Uh, Moving heavy appliances and furniture is not appropriate on Shabbat. The traditional halakha, this is page 47, a third little entry, says the traditional halakha also prohibited the carrying of heavy objects within a domain, but this was seen as a rabbinic rather than a scriptural limitation imposed to preserve the spirit of Shabbat. In our view, the authoritative sources of the two commandments, not carrying from one domain to another, not bearing a heavy burden, should be reversed. We understood the prohibition of bearing a heavy burden as scriptural and the prohibition of carrying any object from one domain to another as rabbinic. We respect, it says we respect the rabbinic limitation and commend it as an expanded practice, but we have not included it as a part of our basic practice. So when you really think about, you know, Carrying on Shabbat, it's like, okay, so, you know, is the weapon you're carrying a burden? You know, because that's something to take into account. If it's very cumbersome, like, what are you doing? So chances are you having, you know, your concealed carry in your holster. That's not really a a thing to really get worked up about. So, and again, because one of the things it brings down here is... um, At the top of page 47, it says, Speaking in the name of God, again, this is the Sar Shalom Halakha, page 47, about carrying on Shabbat. And it says, Speaking in the name of God, the prophet Yermiyahu sees the bearing of a burden as incompatible with the holiness of Shabbat. Thus says Adonai, For the sake of your lives, take care that you do not bear a burden on the Shabbat day or bring it into the gates of Jerusalem, and do not carry a burden out of your houses on the Shabbat or do any work, but keep the Shabbat day as or keep the Shabbat day holy as I commanded your ancestors. Yermiyahu seventeen twenty one through twenty two. While this text appears to focus us or to us to focus on the carrying of any heavy load on Shabbat, rabbinic tradition understood it differently. It is there interpreted as applying to the carrying of any object, regardless of weight or size. That's important. 
it is there. Okay, talking about carrying any heavy load on Shabbat, rabbinic tradition. Uh, what it comes into uh, interpreting is that it's carrying any object regardless of any size or weight. Okay, it says, but only when that object is moved from one domain to another. So regardless of the size of weight, it's about, okay, are we going from private to public? You know, hence why the whole concept of an Eruv is to keep everything as a private domain so you can move about freely with your stuff. It says, according to the Mishnah, Shabbat 7-2, it says, the 39th major category of work prohibited on Shabbat is removing an object from one domain to another. That's carrying. And it says, as with the other basic categories of work, this prohibition is traditionally viewed as scriptural rather than rabbinic in nature. So you got to think about, you know, um, the rabbinic way to look at this is like, okay, so any, any object, whether it's size or it's weight, don't carry that on Shabbat. But scripture is talking about bearing burdens and heavy loads. And I would guarantee you that if you did not have a means to protect yourself, that would be considered carrying a burden on Shabbat, you know, that you don't have any way to defend yourself, you know, and other people who don't observe Shabbat, they're not even concerned about that. So they're handling their business. And so it's just kind of like we would not be smart to say, OK, I know that's the case, so we're not going to do it. It's like if you know you live in a dangerous neighborhood, you lock your door, you know, so same thing. So carrying on about all this carrying, but I just wanted to bring down the whole understanding of these weapons that we had and that they are spiritual weapons. And it is uh, the five weapons which correspond to Hashem's name. So I want to make sure that I don't leave out anything else before I index this podcast, because that is all she wrote on the spiritual weapons to that we're supposed to stay covered in. Uh, boom, boom, boom. Yep. So Brukashem, that'll do it. So that will conclude our podcast for the spiritual weapons. All right. So I want to get into the bones of Yosef, because this is another thing. <clears throat> so we're basically in Shemot 13, 19. Moshe took the bones of Yosef. So I was looking at the OG Ankylos a little while back here in uh, the previous podcast I did. So. I want to go back to that. Uh, see, 13. Mm, I'm at 14 already. Calm down a minute. Where you going? All right, 13, 19 here. And the uncle says, Moshe took up the bones of Yosef with him. For Yosef had made the children of Israel solemnly swear before his death, saying, Hashem surely remembers you and redeem you from this exile, and you shall bring up my bones from here with you. A little footnote says, Moshe took, which Ankylos would normally render 
un sieve. And it says here he renders it as ve-asek, which is he took up. Because the end of the verse says that Yosef adjured the children of Israel to take up his bones from Mitzrayim to Eretz Israel. And according to Ankelos, then the verse does not mean simply that Moshe took Yosef's bones from Mitzrayim, but rather he kept them with him on the entire journey to Eretz Israel. Alternatively, by saying Moshe took up, Ankelos alludes to the Midrashic teaching that Yosef's casket had been lowered into the Nile and Moshe raised it up from there in order to take it with him. So he says, I just love that Ankelos just brings up that Moshe took Yosef's bones from Egypt. You know, like he didn't just simply do that, but he kept them with him. So when Moshe took out the bones, it's like, yeah, he took them from Egypt, but they're with Moshe. So like the essence of Mashiach ben Yosef was with Moshe. So if you really look at it, we're taking the essence of Mashiach ben Yosef with us to redeem us from exile. So as we're currently going on our day to day, that the essence of Yosef should be something that we understand that we take up with us and that we have with us, you know, so we have to literally engage into it and then keep them engaged with us. So keep the essence of Mashiach ben Yosef on us in and at all times. One of the little things I didn't get to bring down was the Legends of the Jews insight where it says the Exodus would have been impossible if Yosef's bones had remained behind. So if we leave Mashiach ben Yosef and try to do anything, it's, it's impossible. Which, if you connect that to Mashiach says, saying with man, it is impossible, but with Hashem, it's possible. You know, like there's nothing impossible with Hashem. Basically, the essence of Mashiach ben Yosef causes that which is impossible for man to be made possible. In other words, people go, I can't believe you're trying to keep that whole law and all that kind of stuff. Well, it's impossible to, to be engaged and active with the Torah in a relationship with Hashem if you don't have his son. Mashiach was saying that. If you love me, you'll love the one who sent me. If you accept me, you accept the one who sent me. It's impossible to say that you accept Hashem and you love Hashem, but yet you reject his son. You know, and so it's just kind of like, so where does that leave the people who reject Mashiach? Well, do they reject Mashiach because they haven't met him? And I guarantee you, most Jews who are Orthodox today, who love Hashem and are anticipating Mashiach with their whole entire being, they haven't met Yeshua. Because... First of all, they hadn't been shown him, and Yosef didn't reveal himself to his brothers until it was time for the end of the redemption. You know, like, until it was time to reunite the family, bring everybody back together. Which is really crazy, because the beginning of the redemption for the family of Yaakov going down to Egypt was really the beginning of the Egyptian exile. But really, commentaries say the exile didn't really start until Yosef died or until all of the, the, the 12 sons of Yaakov died. 
So it's like, is it the death of the father that begins the exile? Is it the death of the son that kills the that begins the exile? Is it the death of the brothers? And here we are on the tail end of the the current es, the exile that we're in, the exile of Edom, Asav, Rome, church, Christianity. And here it is like when Mashiach reveals himself, it'll be the end and the dead will be raised and like it'll be all beautiful. So and again, Yosef has to reveal himself. So Mashiach, Yeshua has to be the one who reveals himself to his brothers. So this is the the meaning of the bones of Yosef. Like this is the essence, because, again, the same word for bones can also be uh, translated as essence. So you just change the vowel points and the same word for bones also happens to mean essence. So literally we can read this. The Exodus would have been impossible if Yosef's essence had remained behind. Continuing on, it says, therefore, Moshe made it his concern to seek their resting place while the people had but one thought of gathering in the treasures of the Egyptians, which was totally necessary. Hashem told Abraham at the covenant between the parts, Bereshit 15, hey, your children are going to go into exile, but they're going to be sent out with lots of wealth and lots of treasure. You can call it, I guess, payment, you know, right? But we find out later in Mishpatim that once we have a bond servant and we free them uh, after their service, their term of service, which, by the way, is after the completion of the sixth year. So that as they're as we're all going into the seventh year, this bond servant would go free unless they say they don't want to. Then we bring them to the doorpost, pierce their ear, and then they have to wait until the Jubilee year, which was which is at the end of second or seven uh, Shabbat cycles, which will be the 50th year. So it's like you can go free in the seventh year or you can go free in the 50th year. So, you know, just kind of taking that into account. But uh, when when we free our, our servants that we're supposed to send them out with a quote unquote care package, like give them enough money to have themselves established in the society, you know, give them something, you know, to lavish upon them, you know, some nice jewelry or something like that. But the point is, is that that is a pattern for the way we're sent out from Mitzrayim, that we're sent out with, you know, these treasures and, you know, spoils and riches, same way we need to send out our slaves with treasures, spoils, riches. So, there's that going on. It says, while the people had but one thought of gathering in the treasures of the Egyptians, but it was not an easy matter to find Yosef's body. Now, Zeke and Milkama brought up the fact. So our war machine, Avenger, brought this up and he said, you know, when we think about the tribe of Ephraim leaving early, they left 30 years before the, the exodus because they didn't take into consideration the birth of Isaac being the beginning of the exile and all this. So they miscalculated the times. And he said, you know, um, it's hard for them to take the bones of Yosef with them if they can't find them. Because the thing is, when, when the Ephraim decided to leave, they weren't concerned about the bones of Yosef. They're like, we're out. And it's like, okay, we're going to get the bones of Yosef? Nah, we don't need them. It's like, well, do you not need them or can you not find them? 
Because those are two different questions that need to be asked. And, and we think about, you know, hastening the redemption and things like that, but we have to wait until that which is hidden is revealed. You know, like Mashiach is going to be revealed, and then that's when we know that's the redemption. We can't just go like, oh, there he is, or not even look for him at all and just think, oh, redemption in our time, in our life. It's like, no, everything will be revealed. The ark is going to be revealed. You know, the temple mount is going to be put like it needs to be so the temple can be built there. You know, the exiles uh, from the four corners of the world are going to be found out and brought forth, gathered in, you know, some clouds of glory action. Uh, again, I talk about some of this stuff in my Leviathan versus the Behemoth podcast that I did last year. Some beautiful things in there about, you know, what's what we're looking forward to when Mashiach comes on the clouds of glory with the help of Hashem. May it be soon in our times. Baruch Abba Hashem Adonai. So going on, it says, but it was not an easy matter to find Yosef's body. Moshe knew that he had been interred in the mausoleum of the Egyptian kings. But there were so many other bodies that it was impossible to identify it. Moshe's mother, Yaakovet, had to come to his aid. She led him to the very spot where Yosef's bones lay. Don't you just love Yaakovet? She's like, this is exactly where um, Yosef's body, where, where his body is. This is exactly the place. The funny thing about us, like, we we can't find Mashiach's body because, oh, it resurrected. Like, he he's he's alive. He's still alive. And he's interceding at the right hand of the Father. But whose body we cannot find right now is Moshe. Moshe was buried on Mount Nebo, but yet we can't find it. We can't find where his body was buried. Now, Mikael and Hasatan were arguing over his body in the letter that Jude wrote. But again, we have no no location, location, location of where his body is. So the same thing here has to be pointed out. But the, the cool thing is the only way Moshe's body is going to be found is when it's resurrected and he leads in those who fell in the desert to Yerushalayim. So that's totally in Midrash this week about uh, Moshe going to show up when the Mashiach is revealed and the temple's built that he's going to be bringing in those who perished in the desert during the 40 years. So it's like we're going to have simultaneous exoduses going on, you know, like everybody returning home and stuff. So Aliyah for real is basically what that'll be. Uh, going on, so Yaakov came to his age, showed him exactly where Yosef's bones were. As soon as he came near them, he knew them to be what he was seeking by the fragrance. So Mashiach Yeshua is going to judge us by smell. Moshe is able to judge by smell if these are Yosef's bones or not. I can smell if this is Mashiach ben Yosef or not. So the same thing with us is that it's going to be beyond seeing. It's going to be beyond hearing. It's going to be smelling. Can we develop the smell, the sense of smell, so that we can know when Mashiach is here, so we can smell what Mashiach is cooking? We can literally smell what the rock is cooking, because Mashiach, who is our rock, the rock of our salvation. So we got to be able to smell. So there's a fragrance that 
the bones gave off and they spread around and Moshe was like, oh yeah, this, this right here is Yosef. So that was, uh, okay. So, cause it says, no, I deleted that entry. I, I was going to read some more on in the legends of Jews about that. But the important thing to know is that the way the bones were found is they had to be pointed out, revealed, and there was a distinct smell that they gave off. So the other thing I want to bring up is Gadai, which is G. Shekel from Bet Yisrael International, comments on Parsha Beshalak about the bones of Yosef. Starts off with the Kol Hator 2.6 about the mentioning of Yosef or the Zadok in the scriptures is an aspect of Mashiach ben Yosef. Going on to say, Yosef possessed the sign of redemption, for he prophesied, God will surely visit you. See Zohar Beshalak. So the phrase is Pakod Pakoti. Anytime that phrase is uttered by the one coming to bring the redemption, that's how you know this is surely it. And that sign is brought down through the Mashiach being Yosef. And then it goes on to say, when Yosef made this promise, he was still alive, yet he didn't speak of bringing back his body, but his bones, which is atzmot. And then it says, and since Egyptians mummified him, Bereshit 50.26, Yosef's flesh remained in his corpse. However, the Torah refers to his bones, not his body. The term was used on purpose. The word bones in Hebrew is atzmot, which comes from etzim, which means essence. As in the verse, and there was under his feet as the essence of the heavens, which is ke'etzim hashemaim, shemot 24.14. So now when we look at the word for the bones of Yosef, we can also look at this as the essence of the heavens, Yosef. Did not Mashiach tell us that all things in heaven and earth were given to him, right? I mean, I'm just saying, like, that's, you know, the heavens and the earth being found in Mashiach. And you put that together with our told dope drops, if you go all the way back to that Torah portion about the generations. You see, the first time the heavens and the earth were written in a bare sheet where it says these are the generations of the heavens and the earth, it spells out told dope with full spelling, two vobs, which is two Mashiachs in there. But until you get to Ruth, it's spelled defectively. Until Ruth has her, her children, you know, and then it talks about the generations of uh, Peretz, the one who break through. Like, that's when the generations are restored. So, just a little uh, drop there about the essence of heaven is all having to do with the generations that lead up to Mashiach. So, when you really kind of follow that pattern out, how the same word for bones is the same words for essence. And the other time that essence is used is talking about underneath the feet of Hashem is the essence of the heavens, which, by the way, was a sapphire, which is the same thing Hashem's throne is made out of. So just kind of connecting some dots here. So it says this verse can literally be read as 
Moshe took Atzmut, Yosef, Imo, the very essence of Yosef with him. So again, Matthew 28, 20, teaching them, the nations, to observe all that I have commanded you. And remember, I am with you always, even to the end of the age. This doesn't say anything about Noahites. This doesn't say anything about uh, Messianic Gentiles, you know, and, and things like that. This literally says, teach anyone who's not Jewish, teach them Jewish stuff. And I am with you in doing that. And at that point, if you really zoom out from things, it's on the person to accept if they're going to embrace that or not. But the contingency or the, uh, shall we say, the the probability of whether or not they'll become Jewish or not, that's not on us. That's on them. What we're called to do is teach and observe. Teach them what we have been taught. Help them observe what we observe. That's our job. Whether or not they'll convert, whether or not they'll become Jewish, whether or not their beliefs are on point like a ball pin, that'll be worked out between them and Hashem. Because everything was controlled by the will of Hashem except whether or not we will serve Him. Whether or not we'll be a righteous person or a wicked person. That's the only thing of our life that was left un unset, so to speak, by Hashem. Hashem was like, I've said everything else. I've said how much money you're going to make. I've said what you're going to look like. I've said whether you're going to be short or tall. I've said whether you're going to be, you know, healthy or skinny, you know, or whether you're going to be, you know, black or white or blue or yellow or purple or green or orange. Probably left some people out. Sorry. Anyway, Hashem said all that. So when you really think about why is there not proselytization to the whole entire world like Mashiach told us to? And it's like, we're only going to proselytize a bloodline. It's like, okay, so if you're going to proselytize a bloodline, what are you going to do about the people who Hashem made born without, quote unquote, this bloodline? But yet Hashem said, you know, your, your mission, should you choose to accept it, is to be righteous, and don't be a wicked person. And it's like, okay, so if we know that's our mission, then why are we going to tell people in the world, don't worry about being Jewish, don't worry about following Hashem, go be a wicked person. Because you realize if you don't follow Hashem, if you don't become a Jew, you're leaving yourself open to be a, being a wicked person. Because there's only two types of people in the world. Those who walk in righteousness and those who don't. So yeah, so just something to think about. So continuing on this Kolha tour drop, it says, Yosef was constantly present in Moshe's memory at every step of the Exodus. In fact, it was later present in the memory of all Yisrael for the commandment to bury him in the Holy Land was completed by all the people in Yehoshua twenty four thirty two. We could say that Yosef's activity as protector of his family didn't end when he died. His merits were present in all Israel during the whole process of redemption to the point that the nation is called Yosef, as it is stated, uh, Telim 80, verses 1 through 2, O shepherd of Israel, who leads Yosef like a flock.
Ro'ei Yisrael, huh? Which is what we say in the Birkat Hamazon when we're speaking about blessing Hashem. And it says the Ro'ei Yisrael leads Yosef like a flock. So Hashem leads all his sheep, which are called Yosef, like a flock. And remember, Yosef is an aspect of Mashiach ben Yosef. So Hashem leads his Mashiach, which is leading all of Yisrael. So when you lead, when you're in Mashiach, you're in Yisrael. You can't divorce the two, because all Yisrael is called by the names of both Mashiachs. We're called by the name of the King of Israel, which is Mashiach ben David, and we're called by the name of the servants of Israel, which is Mashiach ben Yosef. This is why Mashiach said, "I came not to be served, but I came to serve." Because that's a Mashiach ben Yosef thing. So when he returns as Mashiach ben David, that's when we'll get the Pakod Pakoti. Hashem has surely remembered you. And now I'm going to bring you out of exile and bring you into freedom and redemption. That's what we're anticipating. But that doesn't happen if we're not bringing in the non-Jews, bringing in the divine sparks. So just speaking about the bones of Yosef, and to reach over into the podcast about the weapons, I want to combine those two thoughts with this whole idea of this miraculous traveling and journeying that we have in the wilderness. Because the very fact that we would choose to follow Mashiach, which would be following Hashem, we need to know that if we take the pattern of the desert, let's just look at the desert and then compare it to our lives today. So here's the desert. Midrash Rabbah 24.4. Another interpretation of the wilderness of Shur. It says this refers to the wilderness of Cub. It was said about the wilderness of Cub that it measures 800 parsas by 800 parsas. Okay, which is probably a very, very big space. And then it says, and not only is this this wide open thing, okay, the wilderness, but it's full of snakes, fiery serpents, and scorpions. So remember that whole drop that we always bring up? Uh, Rabbi Griffin does this on the Aliyah Day about Moshe fighting with serpents who were like pterodactyls and all that kind of stuff. Okay, so those type of creatures were out, in, out there in the wilderness. Moshe's like, oh, we've seen these before. You know, and people are like, what are you talking about? We've seen these before. Most like, oh, yeah, when I had to go fight for Ethiopia, I took these things down, man. Like it was, you know, we did that. And it's just kind of like, OK, so for us, we've never seen this before. Moshe's seen this before. But what vanquished those were the clouds of glory. So we never even got to fight with them. The only time we've dealt with any one of those was the fiery serpents. And that was when we spurned. Hashem. We spurned the land. We spurned Hashem. There was this whole rebellion that we had to deal with because of Lashon Hara, evil speech against Moshe, against Hashem, against Aharon, all that kind of stuff. The fiery serpents came in and Moshe had to build a serpent and put it on a pole. And Mashiach in Yochanan chapter three says, just like that serpent was lifted up on a pole, so will the Son of Man have to be lifted up on a pole. 
So this is the whole reason why it's important for us to have a mezuzah, because that is Mashiach on a pole. That is us fixing and focusing our eyes upon the author, perfecter, and finisher of our amuna. And it's no coincidence that we put mezuzot on our house, which is where a gathering of peoples happen. And Mashiach says, when the Son of Man is lifted up, all men will be drawn to him. So there's that. Then it goes on to say, Rabbi Abba related before our teacher, once a person passed through this wilderness of Cub and saw a sleeping snake that was the size of a beam of the olive trees. And whereas he saw the snake, the snake did not see him. Nonetheless, due to the great anxiety that gripped him, he became terrified and his hair fell out. I'm going to go out on a limb that if your hair is falling out because you're so scared, that's that's some deep stuff. That's on the level with like Mashiach sweating blood because of all of the anxiousness and turmoil that was going on inside of him as he was taking upon himself the sins of the world. You think about how much anxiety, how much turmoil, how much chaos that we have to endure daily because of our own sins. Just think about that individual to individual until you get to thinking about how much every person has to deal with and bring that all up on yourself. I'm pretty sure you sweat blood too. And then it says, and they will refer to him as the hairless one. Another great drop over here. Continuing on, it says that uh, we would not know to whom it refers when it states great and awesome, whether to Hagadosh Baruchu or to the wilderness. This is Rabbi Yose Bar Chanina bringing this down. And it says, but the answer is that it refers to God basically being great and awesome. For Moshe said to them, great and awesome is God, for you were provoking him while journeying in that wilderness that is full of snakes, scorpions, fiery serpents, and hunger. You're going to put hunger up there in the same category as all these fearsome creatures? Hunger is a, is a fearsome creature. It's just like, wow, okay, that's something. Then it says, and yet, he led you through it safely. And not only that, but the snakes and the fiery serpents would be lying down docilely before them so that the people of Israel should not become terrified. So it's like walking through the zoo, you know, like in the zoo where you see all these super venomous, dangerous animals. They're behind this glass and they're just docile. Even if you kind of poke up against the glass, they don't really respond. Like all those pit viper things, you know, they're just kind of chilling. And you're like, hey, ah, pit viper, ah, you know, and doing this stuff. And it's just chilling. That's what it was like in the wilderness, clouds of glory. There's snakes out there that are the size of beams of olive trees. They're fiery scorpions. Like you touch them, they burn you, that you they bite you. It's it's over. All this stuff. And yet Hashem is like, because I am with you, you have the essence of Yosef with you, you're armed, ain't nobody going to touch you. So dare not touch my anointed. Does that, does that ring a bell? Does that come into play now? Okay, so anyway, Shemot Rabbah 24.4 is what brings that down. 
And this is what makes me just want to share that when you're following Mashiach, you're following Hashem, you know, keeping a hold of his Torah, you know, there are just some crazy things that is in the world in our exile. You know, people ask me on Shabbat, they were like, how was your week? And I'm like, man, it's crazy out there. I'm so glad to be in here right now. I don't even want to think about it. I don't want to talk about it. But the thing is, you made it. You made it through that craziness. Hashem has got us. You know, and and even for for those of us, you know, Shalom, that we pass away before Mashiach returns, I pray that that is not the case. I pray that I pray right now, Hashem, may you keep us alive and cause our eyes to see Mashiach return. Amen. Maybe so. So, you know, just kind of thinking about the, the gravity of things of what about those who were with Hashem and who've perished? The same thing still applies. Like Hashem is still with us. He still brought us through. And the beautiful thing is about those who have fallen asleep is Hashem is going to wake them up. This is why we pray the second bracha of the Amidah. And this is why we also pray the Kaddish on Shabbat and stand with those who have lost loved ones. You know, my wife and I, we we lost our first child. We had a miscarriage. That hurts to this day. And it was back in September, you know, that this happened. And we have to know our daughter is okay. She's with Hashem. And Bezrat Hashem will soon see her. So let's get this redemption, shall we? You know, so, but just know that while we're in this time, while we're in this journey, Hashem is surrounding us. We have to keep the essence of Yosef with us at all times. We have to stay armed with the weapons that Hashem has given us at all times. And we have to follow his voice. So I want to bring up this whole uh, part here about the the part in Shemot 13, where it says that um, it, literally the first verse, Hashem did not lead them by the way of the Philistines because it was near. For God says, perhaps the people will reconsider when they see a war, they will return to Egypt. And then... That's also talking about that the bones of the tribe of Ephraim that decided to try to leave early, which, by the way, Yehoshua ben Nun at this time was currently known as Hosea ben Nun. Uh, he did not go with the that tribe that tried to start the redemption early. He was just like, y'all ain't got no bones of Yosef. Moshe ain't said nothing. I don't hear the voice of Hashem. And yeah, we are the exalted tribe of Ephraim, but, uh, you know not time to go yet so y'all i'm not with you on that so the bones of the tribe of ephraim were laying out in this path that would have been a short and more direct route to eretz israel but the thing is because hashem rerouted us that it led us to the Suf, which was a mikveh and then it took us to mount sinai which is the torah and then we were supposed to go from there into the promised land. But because we're so rambunctious, we didn't really get to do all that. <laughs> I mean, we got through the sea. We got to Mount Sinai. And then we spent 40 years in the wilderness. Just going in circles. Because that's apparently what we like. Circles. But anyway, so what I want to bring down is the Midrash says here, page 117. Um... 
Well, let me go back to 116, because it says, B'nai Yisrael departed from Mitzrayim, the men under the guidance of Moshe and Aharon, while the women were led by Moshe's sister, Miriam. This kind of reminds me of Abraham and Sarah. You know, Abraham took the men and Sarah took the women. So Aharon and Moshe together, Abraham, and then Miriam herself being like Sarah. And so, you know, you got the men and the women being led by their respective heads. And it says, Hashem did not take them on a direct route to Eretz Israel. Rather, he led them on a circuitous path through the desert in order to avoid confrontation with the Philistine. By the way, so the whole thing with the Philistines, King David, King Saul, they all went to battle and war with them. So talking heavy stuff and um, Gath is near that area. And that's where Goliath came from, by the way. So his great, 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 great grandmother is Orpah, who was the sister of Ruth, who uh, was the one who kissed the cheek of Naomi and then went back to her people. And she ultimately ended up giving birth to Goliath. So if you think about that, for those who don't want to enter into covenant with Hashem, convert and become Jewish and all that stuff, you're giving birth to Goliath, who gets taken down by the great, 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 great grandson of Ruth, who is David, i.e. the one who stuck with the Jews. Just something to think about. Not saying you have to make any decisions, but I'm just saying. Okay, and it says there were a number of reasons why Hashem did not want them to enter the territory of the Philistine. Hashem said if the Philistine attack those among B'nai Israel who were afraid of warfare, will want to return to Mitzrayim. Nor did Hashem want B'nai Yisrael to attack the Philistine, for they, for that would violate the agreement between Abraham and Abimelech, the forefather of the Philistine. Because see, this is another thing, that when that tribe of Ephraim left out those members who did, they violated this covenant that was established between Abraham and Abimelech which was not to harm each other for three generations. And Abimelech's grandchildren were still alive. It was not therefore preferable that B'nai Israel should approach the land of the Philistine. So, I mean, if you really think about that alone, I mean, just no respect for covenant. Not, just like, we have our mission, we have our thing to do. It's like, but wait, don't be messing with Abimelech's grandchildren, you know, that was kind of something that was established by, you know, Abimelech and Abraham. So we'd be going against Abraham if we go against the Philistine right now. So let's not do that. It's interesting. You know, when you look at the big picture, which is what Hashem is really good at, because he knows the end from the beginning and even way more than we could possibly ever know. Hashem was like, yeah, I honor that. So therefore, come on, children of Israel, let's go this way. It's like, but this is a longer route. How long are we there yet? How long is this going to take? It's like, eat your manna. It's okay. All right. So it was therefore preferable that B'nai Israel not approach the land of the Philistine. A further reason for avoiding the land of the Philistine was to spare B'nai Israel the sight of the bones of their slain brothers from the tribe of Ephraim which were strewn out over the Philistine roads. This is kind of interesting, you know, because you got the bones of Ephraim just laying out in this valley. We've seen bones that are in a valley 
later in the prophets. So we're going to Bezrat Hashem swoop around and get that. But in case we don't, it's Yehezekiel chapter, I believe, 37, where Hashem is wanting him to prophesy to this valley of dry bones. That valley of dry bones is the children of Ephraim who left and went against the Philistines and did not turn out well for them. So Hashem was like, no, I don't want them to see that either. I'm going to save that for Yehezekiel because I got some things to show him with that. Got some prophecy I need to lay down. And besides, Hananiah, Mishael, and Azariah are going to need their help. So, yeah, let's just not deal with this right now. Yep, we'll talk about that in a minute. Sanhedrin drop coming at you. Continuing on, it says, A large number of families from the tribe of Ephraim had left Mitzrayim 30 years before the Exodus, miscalculating the time of redemption. They claimed that the 400 years of Egyptian exile foretold to Abraham at the Brit Bain Habetarim began at the time of the covenant, while in reality the true beginning of the exile was reckoned from the day of Yitok's birth. So the distance between the covenant between the parts and the birth of Yitok, 30 years, the children of Ephraim, counted from the covenant between the parts and they rejected the birth of Yitzhak. It's like, ah, the birth don't matter. It's the covenant between the parts. Hashem spoke right there, so that's what really is important. It's like, no, let's think about this. The birth of the Yakida is probably something to take into account. Because really, when it says the descendants of Abraham, the descendants of Abraham don't begin until Yitzhak. So that, that's kind of important. Think about that little detail. It goes on to say here, they escaped from Mitzrayim, but upon arriving in the land of the Philistine, they were attacked by the inhabitants and 300,000 B'nai Ephraim were slain. Says a parable. A prince came from a distant country to marry his betrothed, when the wedding ceremony was over, the couple prepared for their long trip back to the prince's land. The newlyweds set out in good spirits, but while traveling, the prince's young wife passed away suddenly, and he buried her alongside the road. Sometime later, it was sometimes later it was proposed to him that he marry his late wife's younger sister. He agreed and again traveled the same foreign country for the wedding. When the feast was over, the prince thought, I will not take my young wife to my country via the direct route. If she notices her sister's grave on the way, she will be disheartened and might not want to continue the journey. It would be preferable to take a different route. Similarly, Hashem circumvented the land of the Philistine for fear that upon noticing the bones of the tribesmen of Ephraim, the B'nai Yisrael would be discouraged and want and would want to return to Mitzrayim. So just something to take into account there. So what I want to do is just bring down this tractate of Sanhedrin here, Sanhedrin 92b. It says, the sages taught in a Bereta, at the moment that Nebuchadnezzar the wicked cast Hananiah, Mishael, and Azariah into the fiery furnace, yes, commonly known as Shadrach, Meshach, and Abednego, but it's important to note, 
even Daniel, when you read it, it points out that their actual names are Hananiah, Mishael, and Azariah, which are their Hebrew names. So when we refer to them not by their Hebrew names, we are divorcing them of their Jewishness. But notice we don't call Daniel Belshazzar, we call him Daniel. So like, what's up with that? Because he's called Belshazzar, you know, and it's just kind of like, okay, that's in the text. But yet we call him Daniel. And it's not just because the book is named Daniel. I mean, come on now. Because I mean, if we're really going with strictly text-based things here, why are we calling Hananiah, Mishael, and Azariah by other names? I mean, this is the same thing that's going on with Mashiach being called JC. Like, we clearly know his name is not JC. That name is only 400 years old. What was he called before that? Because he, Mashiach didn't ascend 400 years ago. I mean, we say, what, it's been 2,000 years? Okay, so 2,000 years ago, what was Mashiach called by? I'm going to give you a hint, Yeshua. You know, so therefore, if we're not acknowledging what he was actually called by, when they announced his name, when they announced it, when they announced his name at his uh, his Brit Milah, because that's what happened. He got circumcised on the eighth day because because he's Jewish and stuff. They said Yeshua ben Yosef. I mean, come on. What what more do we need? To call him something different from that, that that insinuates, implies and infers that we're not OK with Yeshua, and we want to be comfortable with what we call the creator of the universe, because Hashem used Mashiach Yeshua to create the universe. Is not the Torah called the master craftsman? Do we not call our Mashiach a carpenter? I mean, come on. Anyway, back to Mishael, Hananiah, and Azariah. They were thrown in the fiery furnace, Sanhedrin 92b. HaKadosh Baruch Hu, said to Yehezekiel, to Ezekiel, go and revive the dead in the Dura Valley. Once Yehezekiel revived them, the bones came and struck Nebuchadnezzar, that wicked man in his face. So all 300,000 of these perished B'nai Ephraim were resurrected as the Valley of Dry Bones and they went over to the king of Babylon and struck him in his face because he threw their brothers, Hananiah, Mishael, and Azariah in the furnace. Nebuchadnezzar said, what is the nature of these? His servant said to him, the friend of these three, Hananiah, Mishael, and Azariah, is reviving the dead in the Dura Valley. Notice Yehezekiel is called a friend of these three individuals. So just to kind of think about Hananiah, Mishael, and Azariah hanging out with Yehezekiel. And here they are, you know, look at the prophet Yehezekiel, how um, un unrelenting he is to everything. He's just like, I'm going to be obedient even if the worst stuff happens, even if I have to do really horrible things, you know, and hence why he's my favorite prophet, because he's just he is an iron man in his own right. But I digress. He and these three other Hebrew boys here, they were compadres. They hung out before, you know, getting kicked out of the land and stuff. So I just think that's really cool just to think about who hung out with who in, in, in actuality. So could it be that, you know, 
they hung out together and therefore, you know, they're all like, you know, cool with each other and they, they learn from each other and they're, they're modeled after each other. And so you have this whole, uh, picture here of them, you know, iron sharpening iron. Yehezekiel wouldn't bow to this Nebuchadnezzar guy. So why should we? So it's just something to think about. And it says, so the friend of these three, Hananiah, Mishael, and Azariah, is reviving the dead in the Dura Valley. Nebuchadnezzar began and said, how great are his signs and how mighty are his wonders. His kingdom is an everlasting kingdom and his dominion is from generation to generation. Daniel 3.33, the sages taught in Abareta six miracles were performed on that day that Hananiah, Mishael, and Azariah were thrown or were delivered from the furnace. They are six miracles. Count them up. Number one, furnace rose from where it was sunken to ground level. So the furnace was really a pit. So they threw Hananiah, Mishael, and Azariah into a fiery pit. So that rose up to ground level. That's the first miracle. Number two, the furnace was breached. They came out of it. Okay, and number, okay, so one, two, three, limestone dissipated. All the little rock and everything. And then it says, number four, the graven image of Nebuchadnezzar that he established which he commanded his subjects to worship in Daniel 3, 5 through 6, it fell on its face. Okay, so we got one, two, three, four. Number five, four ranks of, of, of officials from monarchies who stood around the furnace were burned. So all these people who were like, oh, we're distinguished men. Shem was like, yeah, you're also roasted. Okay. And then number six, Yehezekiel revived the dead in the Dura Valley. So all those miracles went down. And that's the whole connection with the bones of the tribe of Ephraim. Sanhedrin 92b. And while we're at it, I'm just going to throw this in from Legends of the Jews that when they were going through the Yom Suf, one of the things that happened with uh, the army of the Egyptians, some of them made it across, even though the sea collapsed in on them and swirled around and everything. So they crawled out onto the seashore and the sea grabbed them, pulled them back in and continued to churn them until they perished in the depths. Pyro, by the way, was the only one who survived this incident and for 50 days, Hashem kept him underneath the sea to see all of his men, you know, perishing and drowning and suffocating and, and dying. And it's dark. It's deep here. The sea is just tumultuous. Paro's in the sea for 50 days. Hashem then releases him and exiles him to Nineveh. So that's another thing that's brought down. So if you really look at the 50 days of Paro staying in the sea, just after the Torah coming down on Shabbat, a few days later would be Paro being released from the sea and going over to be king of Nineveh. 
So that kind of is the timing because 50 days from leaving Egypt to Mount Sinai is the whole time period for Shavuot, counting the Omer and all that wonderfulness. And during a part in the middle of the 50 days, Paro began his 50 days while he was underneath the sea and having all sorts of uh, come to Yeshua moments that you don't just run everything, Paro. You, you're not a God. I am God. And he learned that he had to see his whole army perish. And, you know, he was released, not to mention the psychological rearranging, for lack of a better term, that has to happen to a person who's underwater for 50 days. I'm just going to tell you right now, if I got cast into the depths of the sea for 50 days and somehow I was still alive and didn't suffocate, like, mm, that's weird. It's like I can't leave. I'm in a prison. It's dark here. It's cold. I'm underwater. And like, what? What? What is going on? So just, you know, kind of think about the psych psychology of what's going on there. So, um, and then the final thing I want to go ahead and say is for those who were very, very scared, he's Kunion Shemot 1410, because the, the children of Israel were like, all right, this group's going to do that. This group's going to do that. There was like four different things. Some people were like, we're going to run into the sea and we're just going to drown. We're going to die. Others were like, we're just going to make a run at the Egyptians. Others were like, no, we're going to stand and we're going to pray. Others were like, no, we're just going to make a whole bunch of noise and try to scare everybody away. Hashem was like, Thank y'all for playing, but all four of those options are wrong. I'm going to need y'all to go forward. And not in a self-suicide, like cast ourselves off a cliff into the ocean type thing. So just kind of something to think about when we want to make up our own mind, how we need to follow Hashem. So Kis Kuni weighs in on this and he says, Why would 600,000 male, able-bodied Israelites be so scared of 5,000 Okay, a little bit of a ratio here. 600,000 get you sums to 5,000, what is this? You know, why would they be scared of that? It says, we have been told that they were all armed. Their fear was based on their slave mentality. Every slave is afraid of his master. These Israelites had not yet proven to themselves that they could fend for themselves. I immediately thought about Mashiach's words, Matthew 6, 24. No one can serve two masters, for either he will hate one and love the other, or he will stick by one and look down on the other. You cannot serve God in money. Well, Yeshua's going two masters. Okay, we get it. You know you were one master. Da, da, da. You can't serve God in money and money. You can't serve God and money. I'm like, wait, that was a big jump. It's all in the same verse for crying out loud. What's Mashiach getting at? Ultimately, when you think about what the word for money is in Hebrew, it's the word kesef and it's the word for yearning. If your yearnings are towering over your love and your affection and allegiance and loyalty to Hashem, you're serving money. This is why people generally don't want to pay tithes or give zedakah or keep the Shabbat. Or eat kosher. Because they love their yearnings. I love God, but I can't give up pork. You know? Um, man, Xmas is just a family thing. Like, this is what we do. Like, if we're not sitting around a tree 
and bowing to it to get our presence, I mean, because that's what really what happens, then, you know, I can't do this. You know, I can't think about not doing this. It's like you're either going to serve God or you're going to serve money. You're either going to be all about Hashem's righteousness or your own self-righteousness. And I've noted that the context of this verse comes in the middle of generous giving and not worrying. That's in the Matthew verse. And in the Matthew or in the Luke section, it's in chapter 11 and it's in the context of the sign of Jonah, repentance and deeds of the Pharisees where they're keeping people out, shutting the door of the kingdom of heaven in men's faces. Because truth be told, if you don't want to go out and teach the nations the Torah and help bring them in, those who are willing, you are a person who loves your yearnings more than you love Hashem because Hashem said, go get them. And yet we're saying, nah, leave them out there. You know, if you had the opportunity to help somebody and you don't help them, you got to think about the ramifications of that. Because there's, there's no way you can truly say you love God but hate your brother. Oh, snap. Because your brother is your neighbor, did you know? And if you don't love your neighbor, how can you say you love Hashem? That's Shema. That's 101. It's foundational. On that note, that will conclude the drops from Parsha Boom Beshakalaka, or Boom Shakalaka, Boom Beshalaka. All right. Um, I wanted to make sure I went over some of the extra things that I did not get to say during my guest appearance on the Aliyah Day. So Baruch Hashem. Baruch Atah Adonai Eloheinu Melech HaOlam Asher Natan Lanu Torah Temet Vekaye Olam Natabetocheinu Baruch Atah Adonai Noten HaTorah Amen.